For the last several weeks, we have been in John chapter 4 and Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, this was originally going to be a two-part uh, message on this text, and it became a three-part. And honestly, guys, I just kind of had to land the plane here. Like, I, I, I've been amazed, and I shouldn't be, but I've been amazed as we've been studying John just how much there is here, just how much depth there is here. It's like, you know the story of Jesus uh, to some extent, but when you really start digging into what John's doing, it, it is amazing to me just how many layers there are. Um, so today we're going to look at John 4, verses 19 through 39 in particular. Um, and if you haven't heard the previous two messages in this series on, on this passage of Scripture, uh, let me encourage you to go back and check those out. Um, John 4, 19 through 39. Let me read this to us this morning. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. When the hour, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do, do you not say... There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into that labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And this is the word of the Lord. Oh, man, does anybody feel uh, just like a heaviness right now, just kind of over our world and uh, just what the mess that our world is? Uh, if you feel that way, it's not because you're crazy. <laughs> it's because our world is a mess. It's because that actually is the case. And while that mess may be different or more pronounced um, in certain ways during this season, uh, the fact that our world is a mess is certainly not a new phenomenon. And church, I think that the human experience in many ways is about how, how we go about finding hope in the midst of the mess of our world 
in the midst of the brokenness of our world, that the human experience is largely a quest for hope. Um, and whether you realize it or not, your life, and I think the lives of everybody, um, is shaped by the person or things or institutions or people that we find our hope in. Those things really do, in many cases, come to define us. Now, to be a Christian, though, it means that you are somebody who has found his or her hope not in the things of this world and not in other people, um, but in the atonement of Jesus Christ. Or in other words, that through faith in Jesus's death and resurrection, you have now been restored to right relationship with the Father, which despite the mess of our world means that your future is now secured. Even though you're still here in the midst of all of this, the future is sealed through Christ. Through Christ, you will be safe. You will be provided for. And more importantly, you will be with God forever. And that knowledge, if, if we can rest in it, is a massive relief, isn't it? If those things are really true, and I can inhabit a space in my life where those things are not just theoretically true, but I'm really living as if they're true. It's a massive relief. But it doesn't mean that we don't feel the brokenness of our world. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve with families who've lost children or hurt at the effects of natural disasters or war, or genocide or famine or etc. Despite the security of our future, we are not meant to be detached from this place, but very much engaged with genuineness and empathy. The Christian should not be the person who plasters on a smile and everything's wonderful no matter how terrible things actually are. No, to emulate the way of Christ is to step into the mess of this world in order to bring hope and healing to hurt with those who hurt and to grieve with those who grieve and to weep with those who weep, but to do so, listen, as one who has hope. The only way that we can do that without it completely overwhelming and overtaking us is to be so rooted in the true hope and to run to the true hope as our refuge. And that's exactly what we're talking about today. Last week we explored what's called the Hebrew betrothal typology that's so prevalent in this text here in John 4. And if you weren't here, basically Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman follows a pattern that we find in Old Testament narratives where a man becomes betrothed or legally engaged to a woman. And, and let us remember also that in that classical Hebrew betrothal paradigm, normally money or something of value has changed hands so as to secure the arrangement. We saw this typology in the stories of Isaac and Jacob and Moses, but here in John 4, Jesus' bride is not simply the Samaritan woman that he meets, nor is it simply the town that the Samaritan woman runs back to after leaving her water jar at the well. It's the church itself. All those who will ultimately come 
to believe and follow Christ in faith. And in many ways, this woman and her town represents that. So as the church, what we saw is that we are currently living in an age in which we are betrothed to Christ, where there is still massive brokenness, right? Massive sin and and fallenness in our world. All things have not been made new. We are living in this stage of betrothal. We have made commitment to Jesus. And listen, he has made a commitment to us in the form of his body and his blood, in the form of the new covenant. It's what we celebrate every week with the Eucharist or Holy Communion. But this is an already but not yet reality, as we've talked about in the past. Jesus will ultimately return for his bride, and then the marriage will be fully consummated. So this period of betrothal, it's a period of waiting. It's a period of waiting. But it's not a period of sitting and doing nothing. So here's the question we asked at the end of last week. What do we do in this period of waiting? What do we do here in the interim? What does it look like for us to be knowingly betrothed to Christ? And we said two things are supposed to be going on in this season. One is that we are to be getting ready for his return. We are to be getting ready for his return. And then two, that Christ is getting us ready for his return. We are to be getting ready, and Christ is getting us ready. So let me reread the text I closed with last week, which is Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. I think most of us think of this as a passage about earthly marriage, Paul's instructions to husbands and wives. But but it really seems that Paul's point is more about heavenly marriage and how an understanding of that should ultimately come to shape our earthly marriages. But here's what he says. This is Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So how are we to love our wives? As Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He he loved her so much that he gave himself up for her. But then verse 26, that he might sanctify her. He gave himself up that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So so here Paul is describing for us what Christ has done and is doing for his bride, the church. First, he's given himself up for us. Like, this is the thing of value in this betrothal, right? Jesus' body and blood, his life was voluntarily given for us. Later in John 10, Jesus will say that he is the good shepherd. And his definition of a good shepherd is a shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That's what makes him good. This is what Paul is talking about when he says that Christ's love for the church led him to give himself up for her. So Christ loves the church. He's given himself up so that he might sanctify her, right? Okay, so churchy word alert, sanctify. It's one, it falls into a category of words that we like, uh, act like we know what they mean, even if we don't really, you know, words like uh, a, a sacrament, atonement, uh, you know, just churchy words, consecrate. Uh, but let's get a working definition of sanctify, The generic meaning of sanctification 
is the state of proper functioning. The state of proper functioning. To sanctify someone or something is to set that person or thing apart for its intended use. And the use intended by its designer. It's not just to set it apart. It's to set it apart so that it can be used in the way that its designer intended. So a pen is sanctified when you're writing with it. Or eyeglasses are sanctified when you're using them to correct vision. In the theological sense, things are sanctified when they are used for the purpose that God intends. You following that? So what Paul, what does Paul mean when he says that Jesus has given himself up to sanctify the church? He means that Christ has paid the price to become betrothed to his bride so that he can set her apart to function in the way that God intends rather than the way she was functioning before. And to break that down to like the individual level, for you and me, when Jesus calls us in faith, his intention for us is not that we would stay the same, right? We often think of this primarily in terms of outward behavior, but there's also something internal going on, and I would say what's happening internally is of the utmost importance, right? He doesn't want us to stay the same. He wants us to change. And the Bible uses all kinds of metaphors for this. Repentance, being born again, taking off the old man, putting on the new man. But in a word, transformation. Being changed by Christ so as to be the bride he desires, so as to be what he intends. Some of us mistakenly think that sanctification is the process through which God helps us to become less sinful. And that's not totally wrong, but it's important to understand that becoming less sinful is more the product of sanctification than it is the end goal of sanctification. God's end goal for us is not simply that we would be less sinful. He hasn't just come so that our behavior can be modified. His end goal is that we would be more his. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. He is describing here like a state of virginal innocence. That the church could be everything that it is not just in its natural state on its own. Right? That you and I could bec become something that we naturally are not. Which is innocent. We mentioned the story of Hosea last week. Hosea, who rescued his wayward wife, Gomer, from a life of prostitution and slavery by buying her back, by purchasing her. But Christ, listen, Christ can take the next step in that that Hosea couldn't take. Hosea could buy her back. He's like, I've got the money. I can, I can purchase my wife out of slavery. He could buy her, but he could not remove the things that she had done. He didn't have the power to remake her. He couldn't take her complete and total lack of faithfulness to him and somehow make her pure and innocent again. He couldn't remake her into a virgin and present her to himself as a bride. But listen, church, Christ can do that, and that is exactly what he is doing in the true church. 
Not just some religious organization, not just some people who gather on a Sunday morning, but in the true church, those who look to him in faith as Lord and Savior. I tell you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be remade, and I am the way. This is what we've seen. But listen to me, if Jesus isn't your master, none of this matters. But what does it mean for Jesus to be your master? I think there are two points that we find here in John 4 that help us answer that question. First, he must be the object of our worship. And then second, he must be the source of our hope. He must be the object of our worship and the source of our hope. So let's deal with the first point. He must be the object of our worship. Uh, So what do I mean by this? Um, Without going into too much church history, Jews and Samaritans had different ideas about where and specifically what hill God should be worshipped on. Uh, The Jews had historically believed that God should be worshipped on Mount Zion, which is this hill, and it's not even a mountain, it's a hill in Jerusalem where the temple was. Samaritans, however, believed that the mountain where God should be worshipped was a different mountain entirely. It's a mountain called Mount Gerizim, which is basically where Jesus was at this moment in John 4. He's kind of in the region of Mount Gerizim. In today's world, this is known as the West Bank area. It's near the Old Testament city of Shechem. And the reason for this disagreement between Jews and Gentiles was because Mount Mount Gerizim had been possibly the first place where the Jews had built an altar to the Lord after coming into the land of Canaan. And if you remember last week, we said that the Samaritans believed in the Torah. They believed in the first five books of the Bible, but they didn't believe in the rest of the Old Testament. Whereas the Jews believed in the whole of the Old Testament. And that's why there was a lot of disagreement here about the place. Um, And I think this is some of what Jesus is getting at when he says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. I think he's I think he's getting at you guys only have a piece of the story here, right? You only have a part of it, because if you had the whole of the Old Testament, not only the Torah, but the whole thing, you would see that it's all pointing to me. It's all pointing to me. So they lack a significant portion of the word of God. But Jesus answers this question that she asks because she says, you know, you Jews say we should worship over here. Our people say we should worship over here. What say you, random guy at the well? And and here's what Jesus says. And he answers in a way that would have been totally unexpected for a Jewish rabbi in that he says, neither. You don't worship at either place. This is verse 21 of chapter 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, now here's what I want you to see. Jesus is making a statement about physical location. It's not going to be here, and it's not going to be there. It's going to be somewhere else. And this is a statement that would have blindsided everybody, right? Jews would have been offended by this. Samaritans would have been offended by this. It's truly a totally different position. For Jews, the temple was not just a house of worship. It was the physical location of God. Yes, God was omnipresent, but Jews also believed that his spirit dwelt in the temple. 
If you wanted to meet with God or make sacrifice to God, you went to Jerusalem, you went to Mount Zion, you went to the temple. The Samaritans said that virtually the same kind of thing was happening in their own temple on Mount Gerizim. But when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, it was destroyed twice, first by the Babylonians, and then again in AD 70, just a few years after the death of Christ, it's destroyed again by the Romans. When the temple itself was gone, the Jews had to wrestle with this question, where exactly is God now? Where is he? The Christians, though, said, ooh, ooh, we know. (laughs) We know where God is, right? Jesus is the temple of God, as we learned back in chapter 2 of John. And, And because we are his bride, his body, because we've been united to Christ now, because his Holy Spirit indwells us, God's dwelling place is us, the church. And by the way, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I've been in worship gatherings before um, where it seems like what I just said is lost by everybody, that, that God's Holy Spirit has come to dwell within us. And so we are the temples of the Spirit in this world today. This is what the New Testament teaches, and yet I've been in worship gatherings before where the vibe is that the Holy Spirit is somewhere else, just kind of out in the ether, and if we can get the mood right, if we can get the music right, if we can get the the fog right, right, that we can somehow conjure the Spirit to be here in the room with us, that we can call the Spirit to be, to join us in this time from somewhere far away, and when you kind of step back and think about that, that's very kind of pagan in a way, like, like, like that the Spirit of God has to be conjured. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Have you ever sung that song? Right? It's as if the Spirit is somewhere else, and, and as if the Spirit needs our invitation or permission to do anything. No, no, no. The Spirit of God is living in the hearts and lives and souls of believers, Indwelling, that is what happens at Pentecost, which is what we will celebrate next Sunday, is the anniversary of Pentecost, the falling, the coming of the Spirit of God. All right, rabbit trail over. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true, that word true means genuine, when the genuine worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and genuineness and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for me, this has always been one of the more enigmatic statements of Jesus. Um, It's hard to comprehend to me. And I honestly think a lot of people misunderstand what Jesus is saying. And I I think I misunderstood what Jesus was saying for a long time. What does he mean when he speaks of spirit and truth? That God is looking for people to worship him in spirit and truth. First, let's remember the context of this part of the conversation. It's about worship location. Do I worship here? Do I worship here? And Jesus says, neither. The hanging question, though, is, well, then where? Where do I worship God? Not how do I worship God. That's not what the woman was asking Jesus. Where do I worship God? 
And, and one question that scholars have when it comes to this passage is, what spirit exactly are we talking about here? You'll notice uh, in our ESV translation, the word spirit is not capitalized. But if you have an NIV Bible, it is. So, so this is a disagreement among biblical scholars. The NIV is saying that Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit here. Whereas the ESV says, no, Jesus is talking about your spirit, like your inner state of being, um, or we could say your soul. This is the same thing the great commandment is pointing to when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. It could just as easily say your heart, spirit, and strength. The Amplified Bible takes that view and says that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit from the heart, the inner self. And I really think that is more what Jesus means here. That the location of the worship of God is no longer some temple on some hill in Israel, but rather the location is in the heart and soul of true believers. Does that make sense? Now, the catch in all of this is that that most definitely involves the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? So it's not as if the Spirit of God is removed from this equation. No, no, no. He's an integral player in this whole situation. He has come to dwell within us, as we've said. But here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that worshiping God in spirit and truth, um, it doesn't mean that I have to go to some specific place or engage in some specific ritual. It's not about the outward. It's about the inward. And there are certainly places and rituals that are worshipful, and good, but you don't have to be there to worship God. And just because you ha have been doesn't mean that you've worshiped God. And, and I bet that thing happens every single week, even here in our small church, that you come, you sing every song, you pray every prayer, you confess your sin, you come to the table, and yet you leave having not worshiped. I know I'm guilty of that. I did all the things but in here, the posture of my heart was not genuinely toward the worship of God. And yet God has given me his spirit so that I don't have to enter into some physical holy of holies in Jerusalem in a temple, but rather, in a sense, I am and you are a holy of holies where God himself dwells. An enormous part of God's work of sanctification is not just changing our outward behavior, but transforming our inner state of being, turning us more and more into true worshipers, into genuine worshipers. So true worship in this paradigm cannot be measured in outward actions. It cannot be measured in participation in religious activities, but rather in true worship and genuine worship, it takes place in what the psalmist calls the secret heart. The thing that only God sees, the place that only God sees. And that's only possible through Christ, because without his death and resurrection, the spirit does not come to dwell within us. 
So what does it mean to worship God in spirit, in our inner being, in our secret heart, in a place where there isn't physical liturgy or candles or cathedrals? I think worshiping God in spirit and truth means that our spirit, our soul, our inner being is genuinely biased towards obedience to Christ. In John 14, which is the I am the way, the truth, and the life chapter, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 15, if you love me, like if your love is real for me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, capital H, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, capital S, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so in closing, why seek to cultivate hearts that are biased towards obedience to Christ? And the simple answer is because he is our hope. Why seek to cultivate hearts that are postured towards obedience to Christ, biased towards obedience to Christ, because he is our hope? He is doing a work within us, and yet he has also called us to intentionally move our gaze both literally and metaphorically toward him, to seek to put sin to death in our bodies, to take off the old man and put on the new man, to partner with him in this work of sanctification that he is doing. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Notice that even Jesus says, what truly nourishes me is to be obedient to the Father to do what he's told me to do. And because Jesus was obedient, the Samaritan woman was ignited by hope. Now, does she understand everything fully in that moment? No way. Is her doctrine all buttoned up and perfect in that moment? Nope. Right? Is she clear on every point of theology in that moment? No, she is not. But here's what she is clear on. Something's going on with this guy. And she leaves her water and goes back into the city despite what her seeming social position was and begins declaring to people who she has found. Come and see. And guys, we see that over and over and over and over again in the story of Christ where Jesus comes into a person's life and they don't understand everything about what has happened to them or who he is. And yet they cannot help but immediately begin telling people, not because Jesus has said, now woman, run back to your town and tell everybody, right? But what? Her hope has been ignited. This is rooted in the belief that the greatest thing that could ever happen to any of us would be for Messiah to come. And Jesus tells his disciples that the world is primed and ready for this. You and everyone you know are looking for hope. Verse 35, do not say yet 
There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into that labor. Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen guys, I have sent people before you. I've been working. I've been moving. And now I'm sending you out, not into a barren field, but I'm sending you out into the midst of an abundant harvest. But if I am not your hope, and if you are not obedient to me, then that doesn't matter at all. Because you're just going to wander around in this field ready for harvest and pick nothing. Elsewhere, Jesus says that the problem is not that the harvest is not plentiful. He says the problem is that the workers are few. The problem is not, or the problem is that most people don't want to be obedient to Christ. Outwardly, I want to project that I am. But inwardly, my heart is postured towards something else. Outwardly, I want to declare to people that, no, 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 he is my hope. But inwardly, he's not really. But you could go out into the field, and it is almost like it will just pick itself. If you go out with obedience. And that's exactly what happens in this village. So final thought. Guys, you cannot engage Jesus passively. He cannot be an addition to your life. He must be your life. Right? You cannot engage your marriage passively. Right? If you engage your marriage passively, if you are not an active participant in the one flesh union that is your marriage relationship, right? Your marriage is going to be damaged and maybe destroyed. Your marriage has to be central if it's going to work and be healthy. And the exact same thing is true in our relationship with Christ. Let's bring all these metaphors together here, right? We are his bride. He desires for us to be free of blemish, wrinkle, spot. We cannot do that on our own. He is doing it, but he has also invited us into the process of doing this. But if, if we're not interested in the marriage itself, if the marriage itself is not really our hope, then what's going to happen in our lives? In Matthew 25, and I'll close with this, Jesus, uh, Jesus tells this really strange parable. It's known as the parable of the ten virgins. And in this story, there are ten virgins who are all betrothed, seemingly, to some bridegroom, which is weird in and of itself, right? Is this some sort of polygamist marriage? It's a strange story. But the bridegroom has been delayed, it says. Where is he? I, we don't know. We don't know when he's going to come. We don't know when the hour is going to be. And so these ten virgins are sitting and waiting. But it says five of them are wise and five of them are foolish. And the ones who are wise are the ones who have filled their lamps with oil. And the foolish ones are the ones who haven't brought any oil with them. And so then suddenly when the bridegroom arrives, the ones whose lamps are full are the ones who are able to go into the wedding and consummate the wedding with the bridegroom. But the ones whose lamps are empty and they have no other oil, well, they go out looking for oil to fill their lamps. And they miss out on the wedding. The door is closed. And then it's like they're there banging on the door and the bridegroom says, I don't, I don't know who you people are. 
Do you see how that fits into what we're talking about here? That as the church, as the bride of Christ, I think there are those who are wise and those who are foolish, to use the language of Scripture, those for whom this union to Christ truly has become the center of my life. And so as a result, not only is Christ doing his work in me, but I am also getting ready for this wedding. So I'm going to make sure my lamp's full. Right? I'm going to make sure I'm ready whenever he comes, whenever he calls, that I'm, in, I'm going to be in a position to be obedient and to say yes to him. But then for everyone else, the lamps are empty, the bridegroom comes, and it's almost like they go out looking for hope in other places. Where can I go find oil at this late hour? It's almost like five of them were actually wanting to get married and five of them weren't really, even though they had entered into the betrothal. Right? This is what Paul said to the church in Corinth that we looked at last week. He said, guys, I'm, I'm so concerned that even though you, like, present that Jesus is your Lord and Master, that really on the inside, other things are going to ultimately lure your attention away from him and lure your heart away from him. Hence all of this biblical language for us to be on guard, right? Do you not know that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour? You cannot engage Jesus passively. He cannot be in addition to your life. He must be your life. He wants nothing less. And you cannot worship him genuinely if you are not also seeking to increasingly put him on the throne of your life, to consistently take the crown off your own head and put it onto his head. That is the process of sanctification. It's, it's over and over again, I'm taking the crown off of me and I'm putting it on him. That is work that we are to be doing while it is work that only he can do. To worship him in the spirit with the whole of your spirit, your being, your inner self, your soul. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that you would convict our hearts this morning. Not that you have called us to be perfect, and not that we don't struggle in a million ways. But Lord, reveal to us who truly sits on the throne of our hearts and lives. And if it is not Christ, God, give us eyes to see that. And give us ears to hear your gospel today. Father, help us to truly and squarely and genuinely find our hope in you and you alone. In Jesus, true and only who is ever reigning on his throne. Father, thank you that you have not left us in our sinfulness. Thank you that you have not left us in our foolishness. And I pray, Father, that you will continually call us higher and higher. towards obedience. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Stand with us.